Let's pray. God, you're good, and you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. And God, we are uh, here, we're gathered here this morning, God, to continue to make much of you our good and faithful Savior. And God, I thank you for that, the truths in the last song that we sang, that we can rest in your promises, we can have confidence in your faithfulness. God, that, um, that all your promises are yes and amen, that uh, you um, are faithful um, to um, see us all the way home as your beloved children. And God, we thank you for the promise that there is uh, life and life abundantly to be found in, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that, uh, that I would continue to make much of you this morning. And I pray that you would have your way with us and that you would both encourage us and convict us with your uh, holy, abiding, and life-giving word. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said, amen. So we are continuing in the uh, sermon series, Compelled, as Ryan said. This is our third sermon in the series, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> And uh, we're going to get into the context in a little bit, that in every, I want to just remind you that uh, you need to understand, we need to understand the context of God's Word, what, what, what's going on in Paul's life and what's going on in the life of the, of the audience or the people that he's writing to. It's got timeless application for us and through, for people throughout all time, but it's really important to understand the, the author's um, original intent. We're going to get to that. The, the phrase that I'm pretty sure, hi. The phrase that I'm pretty, it's my sister Teresa, everybody say hi. Hi, Teresa. <laughs> she loves it when I do that. <clears throat> the phrase that I'm confident that irritates my wife the most and that she's going to miss the most when I'm gone is, what's that smell? I've got a very sensitive nose and, um, and I'm pretty particular about smells that I like and smells that I don't like. Candles, not a chance. Candles are meant to be seen, not smelled. Um, I love candles. Like in my office, I have candles. I like it when I come home and my wife has candles lit in the middle of the table, but they've got to be uh, like silent on smell. I know I'm going to offend some of you and you're going to be thinking like double, like if you ever invite us over, you're gonna, you need to really hide all your candles um, unless they don't smell. Food. Um, I love mashed cauliflower and Nancy loves mashed cauliflower and we'll have it with steak or chicken or fish or something like that. But when I walk in, more than once, to my shame, I walk in the door, knowing what we're having for dinner, and I go, what's that smell? And she goes, it's the cauliflower, and it tastes better than it smells. I was in the shower the other day, and um, my wife's sister is a hairdresser, and, um, and she's very generous, and she gives us shampoo and, and all kinds of things that, <clears throat> that I guess we need for hygiene purposes. But I was in the shower, and I grabbed the shampoo, like, like hanging right here like where it always is, and put it on my hair, and I go, Nancy, what's that smell? It was, I look at it, and there's lavender in my shampoo. Like, I don't want to smell like lavender. I want to smell like me, for better or for worse. And we're going to really get up close and personal here. Diffusers. Diffusers. Rarely, but sometimes... Rarely, but sometimes, it has a good smell coming out of it. And my wife has learned what smells I like and what smells I don't like. And I asked her this morning, I said, what do you call the stuff you put into a diffuser? 
she says, we, they, they're called essential oils. I go, they're really optional oils. They're not, like, they're not essential for, for my life in any way. Like, it's essential like, to cause me to break out in rashes and to get stuffed up and to ask, what's that smell? But essential oils? Like, who coined that? It's the best marketing phrase I've ever heard. All of these examples produce the, the candle, the food, the shampoo, the conditioner, the diffuser. They produce a particular and a specific fragrance that smells the same no matter who encounters it. It's the same smell when you walk into our house or I walk into your house that goes up your nose, that goes up my nose. With that said, these aromas give life to some and death to others. Let me expand this illustration just a little bit. Have you ever met anyone who had the overwhelming and sweet aroma of Christ that permeated everywhere they went? They have a genuine joy of the Lord that's not dependent upon their circumstances. They speak freely and openly about their love for Jesus no matter where they're at. They exude the sweet aroma of Christ no matter the environment, no matter the audience, whether it be with Christians or non-Christians. They aren't perfect people, but they are real people with real trials who have down days and down weeks, but they just have a different aroma about them. Here's what I've learned about those people. is that the, the lives of these people smell different because of what's been poured into them, what their intake looks like. They have a right understanding of Jesus as their victor and themselves as his conquered captives. And they're captivated by the love of Christ and they're compelled to follow him and submit to his good and perfect will wherever he leads. They are imperfect people who trust God in all circumstances and are quick to give thanks in everything. Not to embarrass any particular people, but there's a, there's a few people that came to mind as I was thinking through this. One is Carol and Doyle Simmons. Some of you know Carol. She's part of this body. And Doyle, her beloved husband, um, who passed maybe, uh, I think, three or, three or four years ago. But they come to mind as people, no matter what's going on in their life, they exude the aroma of Christ. Not because their circumstances are better. In fact, in many times in spite of their circumstances. Johnny Tata Erickson, I know I talked to her about her a lot, but she'd be another one in a wheelchair for over 50 years. If you hear this woman speak or you get a chance to encounter her personally, she exudes the aroma of Christ that has nothing to do with her circumstances and has everything to do with her submission to her victorious Savior, understanding that she, he, that she is captivated by his love. Do you exude the aroma of Christ more than the aroma of self? Do you try and put out the false aroma of strength, or are you okay with the smell of weakness? Do you smell the same in every environment with different people with differing beliefs and worldviews? Whether it be church, family, work, the gym. Today, I pray we're going to be compelled by the uncompromising life and message of Paul, that we'd be compelled by his message and his life to live our lives in joyful submission to our good and loving king for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom. 
I promise you we get to some context. I'm going to spend um, a little bit of time, not a lot, but I want to get us back into the context. We're teaching through Paul's second letter to the church he planted in Corinth. After the church was up and running, after he planted the church, Paul actually wrote four letters. Two of the letters were lost. We have no, they, they weren't included in the canon because they were lost. And two of the letters were found and included in the canon. We know these letters as what? First and Second Corinthians. Paul sent one of his co-laborers, Timothy, to deliver the first letter, 1 Corinthians. And what Timothy reported back to Paul, what Timothy saw in the church disturbed and worried Paul. He saw that the church was in the early stages of growing apostasy. There was evidence of impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, and licentiousness. And after hearing this disheartening news, Paul did what a, what a loving mentor, a loving father, a loving pastor would do, is he left everything and he went to Corinth. And he went there, not to just admonish them and punish them, he went there to correct them out of love. He was so compelled by the love of Christ and his great love for the Corinthians that he had to go. And his short visit up couldn't have gone worse. He experienced quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger, anger and factions and slander and gossip and arrogance and all kinds of disorder in the church. Paul's visit was very painful as a result of the church's open, open rebellion against his message and their open rebellion against him. The message that he preached that they rebelled against was a gospel of grace that led to repentance and obedience. Not a gospel of cheap grace that they can go live any way they want, but a gospel of grace that would lead to repentance and obedience. So leaving Corinth, and going back to Ephesus, uh, wounded and devastated, Paul wrote through tears a severe letter, one of the letters that was lost, warning the church of judgment unless they repented. And even though Paul didn't pull any punches of this deceived and wayward church, he was only compelled by love for these dear people. And he expressed his love in chapter 2, verses 4. He said, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, that wasn't his purpose. That should never be our purpose and admonishment, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And praise be to God and to Paul's great joy, uh, many of the Corinthians did turn from their evil ways, as we're going to see in chapter 7. But not all the news was encouraging. There was still a rebellious minority who, under the influence of Paul's opponents, continued to reject Paul and his gospel. You know what happened next? He wrote 2 Corinthians. That's where we're at today. Last week, uh, David walked us through the passage where we saw Paul affirm the church. He affirmed them for their obedience in exercising church discipline on one particular man who apparently was an, in unrepentant sin after inflicting pain upon Paul in the church. In today's passage, Paul describes his anguish and his trust in the Lord while he awaited the results of the tearful and severe letter that he sent to the Corinthians. So again, to paint the scene, um, that he, what he's describing today is, is his posture, the way he felt while he was waiting for Titus to report back how the church responded to his tearful, severe letter. Verse 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. 
Paul's co-laborer, Titus, delivered the severe and tearful letter to the church in Corinth, and Paul couldn't stand the suspense, waiting to hear how the church responded. But Paul was not one to sit around. He was consumed with a desire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he went, however he felt. His words and his life continually testified to the reality that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And it was no exception in Troas. He went there, hoping to bump into Titus, to hear how the church in Corinth was doing. But while he was waiting, he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord opened up a wide door for him, and people were receptive in receiving that message. Despite the receptivity, though, Paul's spirit was not at rest. NIV says he didn't have a peace of mind. This is a, a reference to his inward anxiety over the welfare of Titus and the church in Corinth. And his love concerned with mix for the Corinthians compelled him to leave Troas and head north to Macedonia where he hoped he would find Titus and receive Titus' report on how the church in Corinth is doing. Commentator David Garland had, had this to say about um, this, this circumstance in Troas. Paul suffered from the same kind of problems that any of us do. Every reader of this text can probably identify some time in their Christian lives when they felt that they could not minister to others or that they only went through the motions because they were consumed with anxiety caused by church conflict. The threat of dismissal, backbiting, slanderous rumors, etc. It is even more devastating when disloyalty and backstabbing come from, with, from within our own congregations. From those whom we have personally served and loved, Preoccupation with such things and the depression and worry they create hinders evangelism. Church strife never speeds the gospel's advance. It's no wonder that Paul talks so much about unity in Christ's church. I've personally been in this place over the last year. Over the last nine months to 12 months, I've been in anguish at times. And I've been anxious as a result of church conflict that involved uh, backbiting and slanderous rumors. You know, and there's still some residual pain. When I look back on that, when I look back in a season probably between April and July, I look back and I see that like my ministry was hindered. Like I was so consumed and desirous for reconciliation with people that had issues against me that I had a hard time preaching straight. I had a hard time sharing the gospel. I had a hard time remembering that God is my defender. I had a hard time remembering that God is my rescuer and that I didn't need to defend myself. I was constantly second-guessing myself and wondering who I might upset next. This is why reconciliation is so key in Christ's church. This is why we saw last week that Paul called the church to, to exercise church discipline on the unrepentant sinner. And after he repented, he urged the church to forgive them. Paul's told us in Romans that as far as it depends upon you, as far as it depends on me, we're to live at peace with everyone. Because it hinders the work of the church. Back to the passage, we don't know for sure why Paul left Troas when he did and why he went to Macedonia of all the places. Macedonia was, was, um, was actually north of Troas and Troas was north of Ephesus. What we do know is that he left Troas and he left the open door for the gospel 
to find Titus because his spirit wasn't at rest. He didn't have a peace of mind. However, we don't know for sure why he went to Macedonia when he did. There's speculation that he left Troas for Macedonia after he realized that Titus was not on the last boat of the season arriving in Troas. It's now fall. And and Titus would have to go from Corinth by land up to Macedonia. In chapter 7, Paul writes that when he arrived in Macedonia, when Paul arrived in Macedonia, he still had no peace of mind. And he was afflicted, afflicted at every turn. It says that he was fighting without and fear within. He had deep anxiety and he was troubled in his heart. He left Troas where the door was wide open for the gospel. This is a man who's devoted his life to the gospel. God opened the door wide and he went from Troas to Macedonia because he was troubled. His spirit was not at rest. He needed to find Titus. In the midst of his despair for Titus and the church, notice his next words. His circumstances haven't changed. He's still wondering what's going on in Corinth. He hasn't found Titus. He's left the open door for the gospel and went to Macedonia. And these are his next words. Verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But thanks be to God. Not thanks be to God that he found Titus or that his inner turmoil was over. His thanksgiving had nothing to do with good news of changed circumstances. But it had everything to do with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which compelled him in every step, in every thought. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And in order for us to understand what Paul is thankful for, we must understand what the apostle has in mind when he uses the technical terms triumphal procession. And this entire passage, understanding it, hinges on those two words. And I would dare say that much of this book hinges on understanding these two words. This ancient ritual, triumphal procession, was a lavish parade conducted in Rome to celebrate great victories in significant military campaigns. Scott Hafeman, the New Testament scholar at the University of St. Andrews, helps us make sense of this confusing yet fascinating passage. And I'm going to give you a quite long quote, but it is essential to our understanding of this passage. Scott goes on to say, (coughs) excuse me, everybody in the Roman Empire (coughs) knew about these parades of the approximately 350 triumphs that are recorded in ancient literature. They were ostentatious celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstances Rome could muster. Moreover, the triumphal procession demonstrated Rome's prowess as the victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also by leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy, now presented as conquered slaves. The highest honor any Roman Caesar or general could receive would be be to lead one of these parades. Conversely, to be led as a prisoner in such a triumphal procession signaled one's utter defeat. The role of those led in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them, ultimately through their public execution and death. At the end of the parade, the Romans publicly slaughtered as a sacrifice to their gods, their prisoners who had been led in procession, or at least a representative sample thereof, selling the rest into slavery. Though a gruesome thought to us, what a better way to magnify one's victory 
while at the same time offering a sacrifice of gratitude to the gods than to kill publicly the leaders and the most valiant of the vanquished warriors as a final act of triumph over them. So the question that you should ask is, who does Paul see him to be? Who does Paul see himself as in this procession? The answer may surprise you as he doesn't see himself as a victorious soldier, but as a conquered subject. By using this well-known cultural event to describe his own life as an apostle, Paul's point is that as being one, being led in triumph, God is leading Paul to death. Death to self and a final death that will be swallowed up in victory. Understanding this, Scott Haferman continues saying that Paul was an enemy of God when God conquered Paul at his conversion on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ, his favorite term for himself, as an apostle, to death in Christ in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, power, and glory of God, his conqueror. In other words, God continually leads Paul to death in a triumphal procession and in this way reveals the knowledge of God everywhere. And furthermore, Paul the captor wasn't embittered. From his lips only comes thanksgiving to God, his captor. He was thankful to be conquered by Christ the victor and thankful to be a captive of the one who loves him and keeps him. Paul can thank God because he is being led by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He can thank God because even though he was leaving a door that was wide open for the gospel, he understands that the work of salvation belongs only to the Lord. He can thank God that in Christ, God will always spread through them the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That in Christ, God will spread the knowledge of him everywhere, to everyone, everywhere. And that's true in Corinth, or in Ephesus, or in Troas, or in um, Macedonia. And it's true for us, whether it be in Windsor, or Greeley, or Sheridan, or Bozeman, or the Czech Republic, or Albania. That it's in Christ that God spreads the aroma to everyone, everywhere. Paul celebrates his aroma, or I'm going to say this aroma, not his aroma. He celebrates this aroma that reaches the very nostrils of God and permeates everyone he encounters. And to some, it's the smell of death. And to others, it's the smell of life, verse 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The aroma that Paul speaks of, once again, is not himself, but Christ in him, like the diffuser. Paul's message matched his life. The life that we live in Christ should have the same smell of the gospel that we proclaim, the sweet aroma of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. So who gets a whiff of this aroma of Christ in us? It starts with God. We are the aroma of Christ to God, for he alone is the primary audience and aim of our life. It's, it's him alone that we seek to please and bring glory. When we think of an aroma to God, we think of Old Testament sacrifices, don't we? Sacrifices were required of the Jewish people who had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. 
And the Old Testament book of Leviticus spells out the different sacrifices that were required by the law that produced a pleasing aroma to God. What we know today is that Jesus fulfilled the law. And he became the ultimate and final sacrifice that appeased and pleased the Father. Old Testament offerings, praise be to God, are no longer required. Paul says in Ephesians 5.2 that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate offering. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What did Jesus smell like? He smelled like love and sacrifice for the enemies of God. His aroma is that of submission and obedience to the Father. Jesus emptied himself. He became a servant, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I know at times, for me, and I would assume for some of you, I'd much prefer riding in the chariot with the conquering general himself rather than seeing myself as a captive, as a thankful captive nonetheless. The aroma of Christ is produced when God's people are being led in triumphal procession as captives of the one who defeated the power of sin and the power of Satan and the ultimate enemy, death. And it's a pleasing aroma to God when we walk the path that Jesus walked, submitting to and following our good and loving God wherever he leads. A couple of my favorite passages in all of Scripture speak to that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And what, what Paul talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans is all God's grace and mercy. When you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, we see our condition. And we see our good and loving God who rescued us. We see his character. We see his mercy and his grace. And Paul, at the very first verse in Romans 12, where he now starts talking about the, the, uh, the imperatives he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Because of God's mercy, I appeal to you to present your bodies, your entire life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, who is your, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't smell like this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And praise be to God that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are fully and forever accepted. But in that acceptance, we're to live out the rest of our lives being a, a living sacrifice, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. We belong to the God who rescued us. We belong to the God who conquered us. Our lives are not our own. So Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. And as recipients of God's mercy through Christ's sacrifice, we will become the aroma of Christ to God when we are conforming to Christ rather than conforming to the world. Do you smell more like Christ? Do you smell more like self? When people get a whiff of you and get a whiff of me, do they smell Jesus more than they smell self or your political party or other interests that you have? Jesus said in Mark 8 to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the path of Jesus. And it's the path that you and I are to take in order to be the aroma of Christ to God. It's a path of lowliness and weakness. 
Back to Ephesians 5. Paul said, be imitators of God as beloved children. What did God do? What did Jesus do? God in the flesh? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, presenting our lives as living sacrifices while picking up our cross and following Jesus is a sweet aroma that pleases our good and loving king. Additionally, when we're led in triumphal procession by the one who conquered us and live in joyful submission to the one who loves us, we produce this aroma that will have a profound effect, not just in pleasing God, but on all who we encounter. Back to verse 15 and 16. Yes, we are the aroma of Christ to God, but we're also the aroma to Christ, the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul asks. Paul divides all of humanity, not into hundreds of people groups, even though there are, but into two classes of people, saved and perishing, those who have life, those who have death. The aroma is the same. The aroma of Christ is the same, but the everlasting message of the gospel creates a crisis of decision that does not allow anyone to remain neutral. And it would be reckless of me to not ask the question this morning, which of those two groups are you in this morning? Those who are being saved? Those who are perishing? For those who are being saved, the aroma of Christ will have a, the aroma of Christ in us will have a profound effect on them, the ones who are being saved which includes current believers and those that God is drawing to himself. For this group, the aroma of Jesus and his gospel is not merely death, but it's a death to self that brings life to a dead heart and everlasting life. And the aroma of Christ in us, to those who are perishing, is death to death. Unbelievers regard the preaching of the cross as foolishness and the response will lead to their own eternal death. Unless they believe and repent. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. After describing the aroma of Christ that pleases God and is the smell of life to some of the death of others, Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? And it's a rhetorical question. Like, who's up to this? Who can preach the message that brings life to some and death to others? How do we live a life that is pleasing to God, that it's a, a life in Christ where the aroma is pleasing to God. And Paul says, no one can. No one's sufficient for it. Paul never claimed self-sufficiency, for his sufficiency was always in Christ. He said as much in chapter 3. He said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency, anything good coming out of our life is from God. Paul finishes this section with a final illustration of what being led in triumphal procession looks like 
by contrasting it with those who are walking in the procession of self rather than God's procession, triumphal procession. He says in verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul is contrasting himself and his ministry with the so many who have an agenda to profit from the preaching of the gospel. He says, we're not peddlers of God's word like them. Paul and his co-laborers are not trying to gain wealth or reputation through their ministry. Paul's goal is not to have the best-selling book or have the number one podcast. He's not attempting to sell the gospel or convince others to believe it. Do you understand that that's not our call? Yes, we're to, we're to like um, uh, passionately share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call people to repentance. But the work of salvation is the Lord's. It's not ours. Like the farmer, we can, we can till the field, we can plant the seeds, we can water it, and you know what we can do next? We can go to sleep. We can go to sleep knowing that the work is the Lord's. For Paul, the gospel message is the power of God for those who are perishing. He trusts in the gospel. I'm a planner. I love strategy. And I also am a little bit too competitive, as some of you may know. With that, I can get caught up in measuring the success of my ministry and that of the ministry of Windsor Community Church by certain metrics. Strategize, plan, compete. There's churches down the road. Metrics in the church can be dangerous. Working towards increasing giving or working towards intending, uh, increasing attendance in weekend services or getting more views on YouTube or even getting more baptisms is the wrong aim. It's the wrong aim. We might say something like, hey, we're praying that God would, uh, would, would, uh, would bring to the front uh, six or seven people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ so that they can be baptized and they can pro- proclaim new life in Christ. But like we don't have a, a, like a goal or metrics. Like what if only five people get baptized? Does that mean we failed? I mean, the numbers in this church are way down, like attendance from pre-pandemic. And I have a tendency to go like, oh, my goodness, like we're, like we're failing. Like we're all the people. Well, we're in a pandemic, number one. And number two, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Should we celebrate um, good giving like we have? Yes, we should celebrate that. Should we celebrate um, the number of people in seats that God's bringing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Should we celebrate the number of baptisms? Yes. Should there be metrics that measure success? Absolutely not. Paul says we're not like those who have something to gain by preaching the gospel. And he gives us a further glimpse into how he lives the life of a conquered captive in this triumphal procession, uh, uh, procession at the end of verse 17. He says this. He says we're men of sincerity. In this triumphal procession, we're men of sincerity. We operate with pure motives and a clean conscience. We are to sincerely care about the salvation of others. They're not a notch on our belt. They're not another name on the baptismal. They're people that we love and we care for. And there's nothing that we want more. Um, We have sincere hearts, and there's nothing we want more than to see people come to Christ. 
Our victory in Christ actually refers to self-death and self-donation. And our success is defined in terms of faithfulness to God. Sincerity, we're men of sincerity. Um, We measure our ministry by faithfulness to God and self-giving to others. The results are up to God. Next he says that we're commissioned by God. And this is not just for Paul, it's not just for pastors, Um, it's it's not just for those in vocational ministry who have been commissioned by God. Everyone, every person who has life in Christ is a minister or minister of reconciliation. I was going to try to make that like a female pronoun, but I couldn't figure out what to do there. I'd I'd mess it up. That we're all ministers of reconciliation. We've all been commissioned by God with the great privilege to proclaim the powerful and transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as commissioned by God? Next he says, we do it in the sight of God. We live and move for an audience of one, before an audience of one. The aroma of Christ to God emanates as we're led in triumphal procession as captive to the cross in walking the path that Jesus walked in submission to our good and loving God who leads us. We live and move to an audience of one. And then finally says that we speak in Christ. What does that mean? That what comes out of us is an overflow of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's synonymous with walking in the Spirit. So I want to invite the worship team up. In this triumphal process or procession called life, all you have and all I have is Christ. He leads us, He keeps us, and He loves us. And He's worth following. He's worth giving our lives to. Father, you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And God, I pray that you would compel us to have our lives match our message. God, I pray that um, for, for your glory, And for the sake of your kingdom, God, I pray that we would be compelled to to walk joyfully and thankfully in this triumphant procession, understanding that uh, when we were enemies, we were conquered and captivated by your love. And I thank you that when we were conquered, the power of sin and Satan and death was conquered in us. And I thank you that we now belong to you. That our lives are no longer our own. And that you lead us in this procession. This triumphal procession where you're the victor. And we're the captives. And one day we'll experience and we'll taste final death on this earth. But that death will be swallowed up in victory. And we will live and reign victorious with you one day. But right now, we're captives. Not to a vengeful deity, distant deity, but to a loving and near God who leads us. Not from afar, but you continually look back on us 
to make sure we're staying in step, to make sure we're okay, even to hear our complaints at times. So God, thank you. Thank you that you'll see us all the way home. And may the fragrance of Christ emanate from us for your glory and for the good of all who smell us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.